Our sermon text for today is Nehemiah 4, 10 through 20. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders held, had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. There our God will fight for us. The word of the Lord. All right. Morning, Table Rock. It's good to be back. Uh, so if y'all didn't know, my wife and I recently took a trip to uh, Sarasota, Florida for a pastors and wives retreat. And we were there for, um, as a part of what's called Treasuring Christ Together Network. It's a part of a, a network that Table Rock's a part of. It's like-minded churches that exist to serve pastors and their wives who are starting or restarting churches that treasure Christ. And so I just got to be with a bunch of brothers and sisters um, and be refreshed and be with them and be with a bunch of people who just treasure Jesus over and over and over again. And so I just want to say thank you for making that happen. You may not have known that happened and you were a part of making that happen for my wife and I to be able to go there. So thank you for that. It was really, really sweet and refreshing. And while I was there, one of the talks began like this. He said, what is rest and why don't I have it? What's so striking is that it resonated in the entire room, like I would guess in this room. And yet, here we are with so many luxuries and technologies. I mean, we've got beds and pillows that kings uh, you know, would only dream of back centuries ago. And we've got planes that take us from, really, from continent to continent, far safer than, you know, wagons would have across the Oregon Trail. Um, I don't know, you know, ambulances that like, save thousands daily because they're able to respond quickly. And yet, we all know, intuitively know, anxiety, depression, unrest, it's, it's as high as it's ever been. 
Why? Like, why is that the case? What, I mean, what is, you just take a step back and you say, well, then what is rest? Because clearly it's not having the best technology that the world has ever seen or the greatest luxuries. And I just wonder this morning, do you know what rest looks like? Have you actually felt it or at least something like it? Do you know what rest is? Do you have it now? Do you have rest on your best days? What about on your worst days? Do you have rest? Or do you know all too well that question of what is rest and why don't I have it? And so today we're beginning Nehemiah. And so we're in the middle of this series in the fall on Ezra and Nehemiah. We took a break for Missions Week and now we're back. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book in the Old Testament and we just, our, our Bible's breaking into two. So we're really continuing a story that began in Ezra, but actually we're kind of picking up a story that has begun all the way from the beginning of the Bible. And if we were to look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and now the first four chapters of Nehemiah, I think you'll see that what it is, is it's chapters that are talking about the need for rest and Nehemiah's attempt to restore rest to God's people. He's, he's trying to, in the words of Graham Goldsworthy, to get God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so we're going to see this story of unrest and of the one place where God's people will find rest even amid a bunch of turmoil. And so that's what we're going to see when we go to the very first pages of the book of Nehemiah. So that's where we're going today to unfold a story of rest or rest longed for and where God says you can find it. And so I'd love to pray before we go there and then we'll start actually with the very first few verses of Nehemiah, but then we're going to back up and we're going to get ourselves oriented on this story, the story of God restoring rest to his people. But let me pray and then we'll open the text. Father, we come as restless people, unsettled in a world full of distress, confusion, and it doesn't just stay at headlines, it hits home for us unrest in our homes, in our hearts. And Father, we're coming needy to find rest as you've promised that if we'd come all who are burdened and heavy laden and you promise rest. As we open your word, would you give us rest? Do, do what none of us could do. Just transform our hearts that we'd find rest in the only place where it will be satisfied in you. Help us now as we look to your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's, we can turn to uh, Nehemiah 1-1 together, and you will see right from the start the hint of unrest that begins this story. So, Nehemiah 1-1, here's what we read. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hachalil, now it happened in the month of Chazel. There is that phrase. Now it happens. You can just kind of feel the ominous like tone. Now it happened. What happens? Like you, you see, it's this opening saying something's going and, and you're going to find out real quick. Verse two, it's something that's not going well. Actually, we'll go to verse three. It's where it becomes really clear. The remnant there that's in Jerusalem in the Providence who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Listen to this. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
Okay, this scene affects Nehemiah so much that it says that he wept and mourned for days. Why? I mean, well, literally what's happening is they, they were living in Babylon, then becomes Persia, and these people go make a trek back to Jerusalem, and they're back in the land. It's been a couple uh, hundred years, actually, since the first return, 100 years. And um, there's the enemy around, surrounding Jerusalem. They're starting to come in, and, and they're, they're taunting and beginning to threaten and start to plan to attack God's people. And so Nehemiah is distressed because he hears that God's people are not experiencing rest. Now, that's the immediate scene, but behind that is a really long family history of unrest, of why this would land so heavy on Nehemiah, that they were going to go back into the land and finally be God's people and God's place under God's rule, and they're not experiencing it. They're not experiencing rest, so we just got to orient ourselves to figure out why is it such a big deal that it mourned for days? Why? Why? Okay, so let's just go back. We're going to go all the way back to the opening pages of the Bible. You're probably familiar with how it starts. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in a garden. Six days he creates, and on the seventh day he rests. Which is interesting, right? Because it's not as if, it's very clear, it's not like God needed a long nap because he's been working so hard for six days. That's not what's happening. So then what's happening? Why is he resting? Well, if this is one way to define rest, this is Graham's Goldsworthy. He's just, he doesn't, he's not defining rest, but I'm using here to find rest. If it's rest could be defined as God's people, in this case, Adam and Eve, in God's place, in the garden, under God's rule, what's happening on that seventh day is that perfect rest is being enjoyed because it's, it's has it how it should be. And so they're enjoying and delighting and resting in the way that God has designed his people to be. And so they're at rest until, until Adam and Eve take a bite of the forbidden fruit, sin enters the world and rest gets its first and most significant blow. And what happens? Here's God's people now taken out of God's place, out of the garden, and now under the rule, not of God, but of this world. And rest is undone. But God promises to send a son to restore back this seventh day rest. He says, I'll send one who will crush the serpent, meaning he'll crush God's enemy. The one who has taken God's people out of God's place and put him under this rule. He will, this one promised one will crush God's enemy, restoring back God's people in God's place under God's rule. That will come. He gives this promise and he actually begins to secure it. So that happens, okay? That kind of sets the scene. Now just fast forward. You get promises to Abraham of a land, of a place, of God's people, in, in, in God's rule. And, and then you get to Moses. And what do you see when you get to Moses' day? Well, you see Moses has all of God's people in slavery, clearly not in this promised land that God has said they would go to. And so what is the story of the Exodus, but God's people coming out of slavery and going where? To a land where they would be God's people in God's place under God's rule to restore what they would hope would be this promised seven-day rest again. But what happens? They sin. So does Moses enter the promised land? No, he stops Short, because of sin, 40 years in the wilderness, and God raises up Joshua to take them into the land. 
Okay, so Joshua now becomes on the scene and he is shown as the one who's bringing about God's given rest by conquering God's enemies, by fortifying the city and making it that God's people are in his place under his rule. That's Joshua who does that. And by the end of Joshua, what we find is it's largely successful, but we already started getting hints that though they're finally in this place, it's not bringing about the rest that they've longed for. But through it all, God's people were to hold on to hope. No matter how deep the shadows are, no matter how dark it was, they were to hold on to this promise that God would restore rest. That's what he's calling his people, his faithful people to hold on. Even amid sin, those who are staying faithful to God should not be discouraged by the circumstances, but hold fast to God's promise. So here's what happens. Joshua secures this land finally. And I just want to put up a map. Here's what it looks like. So there is, by the time you get Joshua's conquered and then you get Saul, Solomon, or David, Solomon, their kings. And here you can see this land, Israel, that's taken over. And there's Philistia already, some hints. They were supposed to take that and they didn't. And you get hints. Oh, wait, something's missing. Okay, so um, let's keep fast forwarding. And what happens? David sins. And as a consequence of the sin, God is going to divide this perfect place and now it's going to be two kingdoms the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom so we get this israel the northern kingdom and its capital samaria and now there's a southern kingdom judah and its capital jerusalem okay so we are here if this if you're looking at a timeline we're like 930 bc the kingdom, you see how it was all one kingdom and you see how it splits northern kingdom, southern kingdom. That's what this timeline is trying to display. And what you see, it's, it's a blow to rest. God's people are not experiencing rest. They're being divided. So then we are now, we just marched through, although very briefly, obviously Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through Joshua, First and Second Samuel, Judges, we've gone through all of that. Now we come to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and that's now going to take us through the story of the Northern Kingdom and the story of the Southern Kingdom. So what happens? Well, we get below number whatever, three to rest. The Assyrian Empire comes in and destroys the Northern Kingdom. Why? Because God's people are sinning and rebelling against it. And even amid all this darkness, God's people are meant to hold on to hope. But now we're in this year. It's, uh, what year is that? 723? 723. 723, year 723, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria and rest is disrupted. What's the southern kingdom supposed to see? They're supposed to look at the northern kingdom and they're thinking, oh, because of their sin, this northern kingdom fell and we need to hold on to God and we need to cling to God and find our rest in him. Well, what happens? The Babylonians. Babylonians come in, 586 now, and they destroy the southern kingdom. So here we are on the map. 586, southern kingdom falls, the temple's destroyed. So just to orient yourself in the Bible, like northern kingdom, when that's falling, you've got people like Isaiah. Those, that's the, those are the prophets writing. You get the southern kingdom when it falls. That's the book of Lamentations. That's what they're, they're wailing as the temple is destroyed. You get in this time, prophets like Jeremiah, and now they're in exile. And so you get like Daniel, remember Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, or the book of Esther, that's happening while they're in exile. Esther and Mordecai, they're under Babylonian rule. Okay, that's like just to orient you where we're at in the Bible. 
And now, okay, so there's a blow again to rest. The southern kingdom falls. And the story is unrest is like we, we had unrest and we were hoping it would be restored. And it's just being undone and undone and undone. And God's people real like just death is, is reigning. And God's people are full of unrest is the story. And what happens? The Persian Empire rises up and they defeat Babylon. And now, finally, we're at the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because the story of Ezra opens up in the year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Comes on the throne, he issues a decree, and he says, Hey, Jews who are in exile, you can actually now go back into the land. So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of three returns. The first six chapters are the first return led by a guy named Zerubbabel. And that's when Cyrus is in power. Then, 7 through 10, Ezra reads a second return back into the land. Okay, and now we pick up, and we're now the year 444 BC, and Nehemiah is now going to lead a group of people back into the land. Now, why go through that whole history? A couple reasons. Number one, uh, we did this series on Ezra and Nehemiah in part because we want to, to walk through the storyline in the Bible and help us as a church know and see the storyline in the Bible so that you can read your Bibles faithfully and understand what's going on. That's one reason. I just want you to read your Bibles and know what's happening. Number two, I want you to see that in this story, when you open up to the first chapters of Nehemiah, there's a long family history. And that long, broken family history is one full of unrest in which God's people were longing to be in God's place they're longing to be God's people with the temple restored and in God's presence under God's rule. And over and over and over, the story is rest is not achieved. So when Cyrus goes onto the stage and he says, you can go back into the land, God's people are thinking of these promises that God would restore his people back into the land, into the garden. And they're thinking this might be the moment in which finally rest is achieved and God's people are in his place under his rule and we are finally back to what we've been longing for. And so now I hope we can read this verse in the very beginning of Nehemiah with fresh eyes and understand why this is such a big deal. Here we go. Here's Ezra, Ezra, or excuse me, Nehemiah chapter one, verse three and four. Okay. They said to Nehemiah, this is Nehemiah's friend, comes and says to him, the remnant, that means the people in the land, in Jerusalem, back in this promised land, in the providence, who have survived the exile, Babylonian exile. They've survived. They're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. Why? Why? Why is it so earth-shattering for Nehemiah that the wall is broken? Of course it's broken. It was taken over by the Babylonians and destroyed. It's, it's, so dis, dis, it's so much distress for him because he, just like so many, are longing for rest. And it's not happening. And so, like Joshua, now Nehemiah is going to lead an army back into the land with a mission, secure rest for God's people. He's going to go in to try to defeat God's enemies and build and fortify a wall so that God's people would be safe in God's place as his people. So that's what Nehemiah does. That's what the first chapters of Nehemiah are about. So now we're going to cut the scene 
and jump forward to Nehemiah chapter 4, which is the text that Tiffany read. So we're going Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10. Here we go. All right, hopefully you're still tracking with me. And if not, we'll just pick up and you can know Nehemiah is trying to build a wall. And we can talk about dates later. Here we go. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10. In Judah, it was said that the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much trouble. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies have said, listen to the threats. Like this is real. This is real threats. They will not know or see till we come along among them and kill them and stop the work. So here's the picture. This is the scene. Nehemiah's finally marched in with an army ready to take and try to rebuild this wall. And the picture is God's people trembling in fear because there's the enemies are just waiting for their moment to attack and kill. So you talk about unrest, like it's real. They're feeling it. There's people about ready to stab them, kill them, them and, and their wives and their children. So what's Nehemiah going to do? He's, he's going to have two projects. The first would be to rebuild this wall. And the second is to restore God's people to the word. Now, when we started Ezra, if you've been here for some of that, we, we talked about how the Bible gave some pretty subtle but very clear hints that we're supposed to start to see Ezra maybe as this better Moses. Well, we're seeing something similar with Nehemiah, but the Bible is giving some subtle hints and phrases and imagery that we're supposed to think of Nehemiah, well, not as the better Moses, but as the better Joshua. So Joshua was the key instrument that God was using to defeat his enemies. This is from a a man named Jason DeRoshi. He was the the instrument God was using to defeat his enemies and bring about lasting rest because he secures God's people against the people who stood against God and his people. So Joshua came in with an army, defeated God's enemies, fortified a city, and made it so that God's people could dwell safely in the land. And when you see Nehemiah coming on the scene, leading an army into this promised land to secure God's people and give rest, and when you see him organizing an army and putting people, you, and you see his commitment to the word, we're thinking, wow, this sounds a lot like Joshua. And actually one like Joshua would come to restore peace to God's people. And so we're thinking, maybe this is the moment. Maybe he's the guy. Maybe this is the time that rest would be restored. So just now get to the scene. Here we'll just continue to fill out the scene of what's happening. Here's Nehemiah 4.17. Those who carried burdens, meaning they're carrying like bricks to build the wall, were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand, they're carrying bricks in one hand, and on the other, they're holding a sword. And what Nehemiah is doing is he's, he's mobilizing all these people to take up swords to be ready. And you saw in the text, he's, he's putting some people here and here. And, and if you hear the trumpet sound, rise up and get ready to attack because we are going to defend this place against God's enemies. Okay, so that's the scene. Nehemiah the ruler of the armies, and all these people building this wall. Now, here's what happens. In 52 days, Nehemiah successfully builds the wall. It might look then like he was successful. Like, oh, we were supposed to see him as the better Joshua. And here the wall is built and God's people are finally safe. And yet, even as the wall is getting towards being finished, here's what we read. This is the very next verse, the end of our passage. So now chapter five, verse one, 
Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So Nehemiah finishes building a wall to keep out the enemy. And what we find out is as he's finishing the wall, that the very enemy that they're trying to, that's, that's presenting unrest is actually still within their midst. It's now to the people of God, these Jews mistreating other Jews. And that you, you hear the unrest, that word outcry. So despite the fact that Nehemiah looks like the better Joshua and succeeds in building a wall, I think, in, like as Tristan said, what this whole thing is meaning us to, to, to see is that this is a false summit. You get the walls finished. We're supposed to be seeing like God's people finally have rest. And when it's finished, all of God's enemies start to tremble around. And yet there's not rest. Because I think the story of Nehemiah is the story of Nehemiah restoring rest to God's people in order to show that God's people needed rest, not from Nehemiah, not from a wall, but from one who is better than Nehemiah, the better one than Joshua, the promised Messiah that would bring about rest. I think Nehemiah restores rest to show that God's people needed the promised rest from the Messiah. So that what we see when we then, this is the last historical event in the Old Testament. And what do we see when you turn the very first pages into the New Testament? And what do you see in the very first chapter of Matthew? Matthew one twenty one. She, the Virgin Mary, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Or, we say Jesus, exact same spelling, Joshua. Shall bear a son, his name being Joshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word Joshua, he will save Yahweh's people. You turn over to the New Testament and you meet the better Joshua, Jesus, who would bring about rest, who would crush the enemy to then mark out for God his people who are adopted in him, in Christ. And they would be taken from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God, placed under God's rule. I think the book of Nehemiah is pointing us to this better one. So what's rest? Well, one way I'm describing it is God's people in God's place under God's rules, under God's rule. And therefore, when we get now then to something like Hebrews 4, which is where I want to spend our last few minutes, we read this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. When we turn and open the New Testament and we meet this Jesus, the one who promises rest, when you get to Hebrews, you hear of this promise of rest that stands for God's people. That you have the ability to enter into the rest that God has secured in his son. And so therefore you read just a few verses later. This is Hebrews 4. We're just going to go through the very first 12, 13 verses. This is what we read. For he, that's God, has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. You get Jesus comes on the scene and what is he saying? He's wanting to restore God's people back to the seventh day rest that was given in the garden that God's people have been longing for. And so then what do we read? 
we read that then therefore this rest that we've been longing for is a rest that only God could bring about. And so what do we read here just a few verses later? For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The story of the Bible is the story of rest longed for. And you get Joshua coming on the scene and, and it describes what he achieves as rest. But if that's what the rest is that God's people needed, why would the Bible talk about a future day of rest? And if Nehemiah would come like Joshua and restore rest, why would it promise a future day of rest? It promised it because God's people didn't have it. They did not have the rest that they longed for. Why? Because if this is what they needed. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. God was going to bring about rest. He was going to bring about the promised seventh-day rest, this rest that Joshua tried to secure but fell short. The rest that Nehemiah in building a wall tried to secure but fell short. This rest would come, but it would not come through Nehemiah. It would not come through John the Baptist. It would come through Christ. And God's people were meant to look to him for rest. That's what I think the book of Nehemiah is trying to point us to. That God's people do have rest, but it's in this promised Savior in Christ alone. And if you've never considered Christ as the one place that you would find rest, I want to invite you this morning. Would you turn to him? Would you turn to him, admitting that because of your brokenness and distance from God, there's not rest, and in him you could find rest? Now, here's my question. If Christ is the one who brings about rest, if this is the promised Messiah who would bring about this long-awaited rest, why does that question, what is rest and why don't I have it, still resonate with so many? If in Christ we're to find our greatest rest, if the one who, who, who promised that would bring about rest, why then are we so familiar with discomfort? Why, does, why do so many in this room right now feel tired? If rest has come in the Messiah. I want you to hear this from Hebrews. Chapter 4, verse 11, right after these texts on rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So today, here we are, fighting for rest. Nehemiah's day, like picture the scene, literally they've got swords on their hip, fighting for rest. Now the Bible picks up the same imagery of people longing for rest and fighting for it, and now the sword isn't a literal sword, what is it? It's the living word of God that's active and alive to do what? To pierce not our enemies, for they have been conquered by Christ. To pierce what? Our souls that are are full of deep unrest. And to get in and discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The heart is full of unrest. And, And we feel such brokenness around us. And we're aching and we're longing. And we know rest has been achieved, but it feels so distant. What do we do? We anchor our souls in the very word of God. And you preach to your souls two things. One, that rest has been achieved right now. Here's how Matthew puts it. This is Jesus' words to his people. Come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give them rest. Take my yoke upon you and listen to this. Maybe you've never picked this up in this passage and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's what I mean. Rest right now is fought for. You got to fight for rest. And how do you do it? You learn from Jesus. You open up the word that, that pierces your soul. That in the middle of just turmoil, where you just feel so much unrest, you open up and you learn from him and you see promises that are sure for your soul. And you preach it to your soul that you might find the rest you've been longing for. And then we remember that rest is also a future day. That just like Ezra and Nehemiah's day, that they built this wall, we remember that rest is coming. That there is a day in which there won't be walls. So this is how Zechariah puts it. Prophesied of a day where he says, And they said to him, Run, say say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. What's describing is a future day in which Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth will descend. And God's people will have the final and full rest. They won't need walls. Why? Because God will be their ruler. They will be God's people in God's place, under God's rule. And Jerusalem won't have walls. The nations will come and God's people will finally have rest. But we know that day is distant. It's far off. It's not here. And so today we fight for rest in Christ. So let me end like this. What would that look like? What does it look like for us to fight for rest, to anchor our souls in our Savior? I want to end here as I call us to the table. Here's what I think it looks like. I think it looks like saying to your soul promises that are true in the middle of heavy whatever in your life. So I was at a pastor's conference and I heard of a children's book called The Moon is Always Round. And the book goes like this. A a kid begins by uh, just observing what he sees. And he's reporting to his dad. He says, Dad, you know, things like this. The grass is green. I'm paraphrasing. So if you go read the book, you're like, Dad's a liar. That's not what he said. Just trying to get you to understand the book. He looks up and he says, you know, the sky's blue. And then he looks at the night sky and he says, you know, here's the stars and they're twinkling. And he looks up at the moon and, and he says, the moon, it's a sliver. It's, it's in the shape of a banana. And his dad says, no, son. The moon's always round. A couple, couple uh, days go by and actually now the son um, is with his dad and they're celebrating the fact that he's going to be a big brother. They're sharing the news and he looks out and he says, Dad, the sun, it, it, or it's the moon, the, moon it, the moon's in the shape of, of a slice of apple. And the dad says, no, son, the moon's always round. The sword keeps going and now they're setting up the crib and they're, they're getting the room ready for baby sister and mom's belly is this like shape of a big old watermelon. And he looks out and he sees the moon and he sees his mom's belly and he's like, well, the moon's not quite that big as the watermelon, but it's, it's like the, it's the shape of, a, of an oval, the shriveled up orange. Dad, the, the, the moon's the shape of a shriveled up orange. And dad says, no, son, the moon's always round. And then you turn the page and dad and son are sitting on the couch 
as dad's explaining to his son that baby sister's not going to come home and live with him. And as they drive back from the hospital, and the car seat's empty, the son asks dad, why? Why is this happening? And the dad says, I don't know. But I know that our God is always good, just as the sun or the moon is always round. And it gets to the last scene in the book where the dad somehow has the courage to stand up at the funeral. And the son is finally getting it. And he says to the son, he says, son, what shape is the moon? And he says, dad, the mood is always round. Table Rock, I mean, in the middle of unrest that you feel, in the middle of deep, dark shadows, in which what you see is this brokenness and heaviness, and you look up and the shadow has so covered the moon that it looks just like a sliver What we know in our souls is, no, the moon is always round. What does it look like to fight for rest? It looks like you saying to your soul in the middle of deep darkness that does not seem to lift, that you say, our God is always good. He's promised rest, and I'm going to him to find rest for my soul. And I'm preaching to my soul, the moon is always round. And God, you're always good. And I long for rest and I don't feel it. And you've promised it in your son. So that's where I'm going. To find rest for my soul. And I long for the day. But I don't have to preach this to my soul anymore because the moon isn't even a thing anymore because the glory of God shines so bright that it lights up. The new heavens and new earth that we know is glory. And until then, we preach to our souls. The moon is always round. And one of the ways that we preach to our souls truths that we need to make it to the end as we come to the table every single week to remember the Lord's Supper. So what I want to do is I want to invite the worship team up and I want to invite the communion servers to come and we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to do is uh, if you are a believer who's trusting in Jesus for your rest, you find in him rest for your soul. If you're a Christian, we want to invite you to join us at the table. You could take uh, one of the elements uh, that the bread and then the cup and would you hold on to it and we'll take it together. And if you're not, if you don't trust in Christ, if that's not where you find rest for your souls, what I want to do is invite you not to take the elements, but to Christ himself. And would you let the elements pass this morning? Would you go to Christ? And so these guys are just going to play just instruments while we then um, pass out the, the elements and I'll come back up and lead us in communion before we go. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for the sure and steady promises. Thank you that just as the moon is always round and the shadows are deep and cloud our view, that you, O oh God, are always faithful. And you promise rest in your arms and we come now to remember rest and where it's found. Oh, Father, come now as we take communion. In your son's name, Abraham. Amen.